listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today, we are in Novara. Dylan, what was the reception like for you today in the peloton? Um, sum it up for us. Yeah, it was uh, it was really nice to to be back again. Um, also in the final, it uh, it was a long time ago that uh, that I can uh, yeah make some moves in in the sprint again. And uh, yeah, today it was the moment. Um, yeah, the team was really strong. With Affini was uh, yeah it was amazing. And uh, yeah, I was in a good position, but. Uh, yeah, some some little mistakes and uh, maybe the next sprint is going better and better. But uh, yeah, for the first uh, first day and then uh, in the first sprint, it's not so bad if you can take the fourth place. And your emotions through the day? I guess you woke up nervous, I suppose. You probably started the race nervous, um, and then how did it change? And are you now relieved? Yeah, I was really nervous uh, also before the race, but also in the race. Um, also to to go to the final, it was uh, it was a little bit strange, but. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was also really nice and a nice moment that uh, that I can sprint again with uh, with the best sprinters, and then a fourth place is it's not so bad. Well, that was a rider who didn't win today, Daniel. Did he? Dylan Grenewegen, a team at Jumbo Visma, but he looked like quite a relieved man at the finish. The lesser talked about in recent months, Atomic Tadpole. That's right. That's we, his it's nickname. It's been so long that we've forgotten. I had almost forgotten that. that yeah, was his nickname. Yeah, so the Revenant. The Revenant. He um, obviously re- has returned to racing here at the Giro d'Italia uh, for the first time since Tour of Poland. Awful crash uh, in which Fabio Jakobsen suffered awful injuries. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. We're going to hear some reaction from other riders uh, to Grunewagen's return. We're going to hear from Patrick Lefebvre as well and Jos van Emden, his teammate. We're going to cover that later on. He didn't win today. Um, we'll get on to that in a moment in the tale of the task. I'll tell you, Rich, you're going to have to help me out today because I've I've had a busy day. I've been working on something that is going to appear tomorrow. And um, in addition to that, Alpes in Phoenix are my biggest blind spot. You can't even the, say their name right. Well, uh, and yet, Phoenix is apparently an Italian company. Oh, from really? The, from is this it? region. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, they are my blind spot. Tim Murley is a bit of a blind spot for me as well. Um, so much so that in my 18 things to watch before the Giro, I said, didn't I, that I was looking forward to seeing how the tyrant of the, or the scourge of the little leagues, and that was, uh, I mean, Whoa. is that a little bit disrespectful? But it, not really. That, that accurately, I would say, defines his career in the last year or two. And we've had this sort of question mark of how good he actually is because he hasn't come up against the top guys. He did today and he whooped them. He did. He, he went... He he went very early. That's why he's called Tim Merlier. It's earlier. He oh. went earlier than everybody else. Very good. Um, but no, it was a terrifically taken victory by him against some of the big boys on some of the big teams. Well, I do the tale of the Tapa. Go for I it. I was going to say, Daniel, we haven't got a 
any kind of beverage tonight. We're just outside the race headquarters. The Giro's been dismantled all around us. There's no real local colour. No, the, it's um, a bit drab, isn't it? Yes, it is. But we will we will atone tomorrow, won't we? I am disappointed I don't have a beer because I, I could then have said that my beer was colder than the atmosphere on the UAE Team Emirates bus. But I've said it anyway. <laughs> so, Tail of the Tapa, Stupinigi. How is that? Um, yeah, yeah, improving. Stupinigi, Stupinigi improving. to Novara, 179 kilometres. Um, uh, well, it wasn't the most exciting of, of stage things. We've had a lot of these at the Giro over the years. Um, uh, I think the weather could make things more interesting as this first week goes on. But today was a, a nice day and not an awful lot have happened in the race. A three-man break went away very early. Indeed, Filippo Tagliani from Androni Giocattoli said it right tonight. Umberto Marengo of Bardiani and Vincenzo Albanese of now nah, I'm not sh- I'm, I really struggle with uh, the the new team name Eolo Eolo of uh, Alberto Contador and Ivan Basso uh, those three got over four minutes and to be honest the bunch behind were points freewheeling just to allow them to keep a, an advantage of over two minutes it was it was all a bit. Um, a bit cagey. It was a bit cagey today, yeah. Um, 20, 75 kilometers ago, there was a bit of excitement when Albanese punctured and the mechanic couldn't get his wheel off. So he had to change bikes and drop back to the, the bunch. There were two intermediate sprints today, um, as there are every day. One for time and one for points. In the sprint for time, we saw a bit of a, a battle there between Ineos Grenadiers and De Kooning quick step. Um, and Remco Evenepoel managed to get a couple of seconds. Jenny Moscom was third. And Filippo Ganna, the pink jersey, got the three seconds. So he increased his lead a little bit. Um, it was a sprint finish, as we predicted. Juan Sebastian Milano, um, unfortunately, took out his uh, sprinter at UAE Team Emirates, Fernando Gaviria. Took him into the barrier. So a bit of a, a, bit of a, a miscommunication there between those two. And... Uh, some crosswords exchanged it seemed um, from the TV pictures Tim Merlier went very early uh, and uh, got a decent advantage uh, Giacomo Nizzolo came very quickly um, but only managed second he did come quickly but not as fast as his internet connection his famously, famous, famous famously the connection. custodian of the best internet connection the custodian in, is that in, what you are I is suppose, that, is that <laughs> I suppose in professional cycling Okay. Um, yeah, he was great. It was his tenth, second place in a Grand Tour stage. He's never won a stage, um, but uh, he will fancy his chances. He's also got. Did you spot the helmet? He's got his uh, his right to roam, his license to roam freely without restriction. And you say he has helmet. never won a Grand Tour stage, but I was reminded of an occasion yesterday when he did cross the line first in a Giro d'Italia stage, and he got disqualified because it was the same finish line yesterday in Torino as when that happened in the final stage of four or five years ago. Elia Viviani was third. Dylan Grunewagen, the comeback man, was fourth. And Peter Sagan was fifth. Uh, Filippo Ghana kept the pink jersey. The Ciclomina jersey moved on to the shoulders of Tim Merlier. Uh, King of the Mountains, Albanese. um, And, yeah, I mean, Dries de Bont, the teammate of Merlier, said at the finish that the Giro is already a success for them. They can go home. Now, they've got what they came for. Today was also a sad and sombre day because it was 10 years exactly since the death of Walter Wayland at this race on May the 9th in 2011. He was riding for the Leopard team, which was managed at the time by Brian Nygaard, who uh, was on the podcast with us last night. Um, 
very sad. Uh, well, it was a, it was an absolutely tragic day at the Giro ten years ago. Remember it vividly. Were you on the race that year, Daniel? Not that day, but I was on the race. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an awful day, and it's he's still remember the Trek Segafredo riders, which is really the the latest incarnation of that team. We're all wearing black ribbons on their jerseys. And Daniel, you had a quick word at the start with uh, Luca Guercelena, who's a Trek Segafredo team He's manager. He's a team manager. And of course, well, he really runs that team together with Walter Whalen's sister, Elka. Luca, uh, an important day for you, for the team. It's a very important anniversary, 10 years since um, Walter Whalen's death. Um, how did you feel this morning and putting on that black ribbon that's a sort of mark of remembrance? Well, obviously it's a particular day each, each year at the uh, 9 May is something, you know, in our mind. It uh, was really a worst day of my professional career at that time. It's been a tragedy and uh, difficult to remind that, that day exactly, but uh, I think we, we love to live the memory of Voter and we live it every day through LK eyes. That uh, is my... Uh, right arm in the team and uh, obviously we, we would love to remember him as a, a guy plenty of life and uh, funny guy that, that, that loves really to live so uh, that, that's the memory we have of him we always have his, uh, his uh, logo on the bus stay exactly with the name of the, of the other riders as a part of the team and we'll always be like this because uh, we, we live that tragedy and uh, and I think it's really part of, of, of our team forever. Still gassing and fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Super Sapiens founder Phil Sutherland has type 1 diabetes, and so he's been monitoring his glucose for as long as he can remember. Everything he's learned about the relationship between food, exercise and insulin over more than 30 years has gone into the Super Sapiens app. Of course, continuous glucose monitoring technology like the Abbott LibraSense biosensor that sends data to the Super Sapiens app didn't exist in the 1980s, so it was a case of checking every few hours. Like most kids, Phil had a taste for sweet things and quickly worked out that riding his bike was the key to candy, as he puts it. Fortunately, the love of an active lifestyle was something he inherited from his parents, and his parents also had a desire to get beyond some of the preconceptions about diabetes that existed at the time. So in the late, late 80s, diabetics were not supposed to compete in sport, you know, because there's risk of hypoglycemia on the other side. But they said, you know, screw it. You know, my dad was a, he ran a 238 marathon in 1974. My mom taught aerobics, you know, three classes a day for 20 years to put food on the table. And now she rides her bike. She did 20,000 kilometers last year. So I guess athletics is, is in my blood. You know, the first week of swim practice, I learned two things. If I had good control of glucose, I could win. And then the second, more importantly, if I had bad control of glucose, I would fail. So you can say I've been hyper-obsessed with glucose as a proxy for performance for the past 33 years. And then ultimately, it was at 12 years old, I got hooked on the bike. I'd had a Snickers bar at school. And then I got home and my glucose was 350 milligrams per deciliter. I said, okay, well, I guess, I'll, you know, I, two things. I'll go blind so I can't eat these Snickers bars or, 
you know, my option of, I really like Snickers bar, how do I do it? So I had, I had two real options at that point. One was give an sh- injection, wait two hours. You know, and you can imagine as a 12-year-old, the patience of two hours, that's not really an option. The second one, which I liked a little bit more, was ride my bike to the gas station four uh, Ks away, buy a Snickers bar, eat it, and then go ride my bike around the neighborhood until you know, my glu- t- till I got home and my glucose would be fine. And so I started riding bikes just about every day and I'd get a candy bar every day. For a young kid with diabetes who hadn't been allowed to eat candy bars, it was glorified freedom and beauty. Uh, the bike was my, my key to candy. You know, ironically, that you know, still applies today. Phil's passion for bike racing took over his teens and early 20s. He was racing at a high level in the US, getting top 10 results in collegiate and under 23 national championships. And then he met another type 1 diabetic, Joe Eldridge, and found that he also had a passion for sharing everything he'd learned about managing the condition. Joe was equally determined not to let it get in the way of his ambitions on the bike. And out of that friendship came Team Type 1 and a crack at the race across America. And we'll hear about that tomorrow. But now it's back to Richard and Daniel in Italy. Thank you very much indeed to our title sponsor, our new title sponsor, Super Sapiens, the only real-time energy management system for athletes. It's being used by Jumbo Visma, Ineos Grenadiers, Canyon SRAM, and, and the Cycling Podcast soon. Isn't that right, Daniel? We're looking forward to that. Now, Super Sapiens are offering our listeners a tremendous prize to celebrate their partnership with us. Super Sapiens are offering three listeners a chance to win three months supply of sensors, enabling them to optimize their fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning one of these incredible prizes is to send in a persuasive argument as to why Super Sapiens could help you um, track and fuel your most ambitious cycling related goal in the coming months. It could be an Everest challenge for charity, getting your FTP back to its pre-COVID level, or simply uh, riding 100 miles. Whatever would be the most meaningful challenge to you, send us an audio file or a video uh, of you explaining why uh, you could benefit from using uh, Super Sapiens to help you try and achieve that goal. Um, Email us, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. Lionel, if you're listening, as I know you will be, your uh, Tour de Cosse challenge that's coming up in June doesn't count uh, you're not eligible for the competition Lion, but Lionel's touring Kos e- Greek e- Island e- oh, Kos. Sorry. it's a French sorry. word for, for Scotland right. Daniel anyway we've been joined by a, a, a special guest Daniel Hans Rugenberg Hans I I always lose track of who you I mean this is a terrible this is a terrible oversight <laughs> but you Dutch guys you you know it's a bit of a, a, a journalistic merry, merry-go-round in um, in the Netherlands I always feel I never know who you're writing for I'm writing for the Telegraph. But you're a very acclaimed journalist, that's the most important thing. Writing yeah. for a very acclaimed publication, there you go, Telegraph. Yeah, yeah Telegraph, we're the biggest newspaper in Holland, eh? Okay, okay. <laughs> um, huge, it was a huge day, huge story today, wasn't it? Um, the return of Dylan Groenewegen. And, um, well, how's it, been, how's it been covered and received, I suppose, over the last like week or so? Yeah, well, there, there was a bit of a, a, well, a mess created by Jacobs, of course, uh, uh, with the message he sent out about uh, Dylan Groenewijk, that, that he was unhappy uh, what he said uh, uh, about uh, the meeting they had. But uh, still, I think uh, what I read is, is everybody still very positive about uh, Groenewijk and they, they uh, know he's, uh, he's working hard to get back in the, in the race. And uh, I think he's got the sympathy back from the people. Do you know what kind of training he's been doing? Because... Um 
after the finish today, he made a point of what he talks about how good his condition was. In fact, he said yeah. it was perfect. And to get in that kind of condition when he's not been racing is some feat, I suppose. Yeah, well, I, I know I spoke to the, the sports director as well, and he said he did some, a lot of sprint training uh, before the before the Giro d'Italia. And before that, he was training with his father behind the scooter. So he did massive kilometers uh, uh, behind the scooter of his, uh, of his father. So he's in good shape. I saw... I was looking through his legs and they they seem even a little bit bigger than uh, nine months ago. Maybe they're pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we talked, you mentioned, you mentioned, um, what, nine months. Um, I know that much about pregnancy. Um, you, you talked about Jakobsen there and the comments last week that sort of have brought the, well, the issue was always going to come back onto the news agenda with Groenewegen coming back but it did already last week there were there were some people that detected the hand of Patrick Lefebvre there um, because we all know that he the Dequinic Quickstep manager has been very upset with um, Groenewegen and what happened um, I spoke to Patrick Lefebvre this morning in fact let's hear from him now and, and what he said um, about Jakobsen's com- comments last week and, and how, about how he feels um, with regard to Groenewegen coming back Patrick, you, you've answered this number of different times, I guess, this morning, in a number of different languages, but how will you feel this afternoon if Dylan Groenewegen is standing on the top step of the podium? For me, he's one of the riders of the bunch. Uh, what happened, happened. Uh, everybody knows my opinion. I'm very popular in Holland now, but uh, I don't care. I have my opinion and I'm 66. Nobody has to tell me what I have to think. And he's here and uh, I hope for him it's okay but uh, not more and not less. What happened the other day with Fabio, it seems now that Fabio is talking about, not talking about Dylan and, and vice versa. They're sort of talking about the fact that they don't want to talk about everything that's going on. First of all, there was a confidential meeting. What I understood uh, in my whole life, if something is confidential, you don't talk about it. So they started, there was not only Grunewijk, there was also Richard Flugger, the press uh, guy, two lawyers, so this is not a confidential meeting. And at the end of the story, they give the, the guilty to Fabio, not vice versa. They don't even say sorry. And I understand if you say the, more, the word sorry in the press, it costs you money. But under four eyes or ten eyes, whatever, he could have said sorry, but he didn't. Uh, almost the opposite. It was um, something who happens in cycling. When will this story be dead and buried and over and all the, the legal consequences be resolved? For me, the story is over. I have my opinion. I said I'm the bad boy. But uh, I, I said to Fabio, forget this. Concentrate your own on your career. And uh, maybe in five years or seven years, you will see some money. Or maybe even not. So what did you make of that, Hans? Well, I, I don't think it was Jacobs himself did this because uh, maybe some legal uh, things in it as well, Ed, because there was a meeting and there were also legal people around there. And, well, we know all, you can't say everything about that when you're in a meeting. But um, And then the comments came out. Um, I, I don't think it's Jacobs himself who did this, but I don't know who uh, said to him to do it or, or not, but... Uh, I think there were some people who uh, who said, well, you have to react on, on what Groenewegen said, although I I don't think Groenewegen made a mistake because he didn't talk about what they talked about um, in, he, in the meeting. He, yeah, he said it was a nice meeting, didn't he? And it, yeah. it, it seems 
the way that it's being presented by Jakobsen Lefebvre is that it was a, a very much a legal meeting, whereas yeah. uh, Grunewagen seemed to present it as a reconciliation meeting where they had a nice conversation and so on. But I think it is, I mean, there are two separate legal actions against Grunewagen by yeah. De Koenig Quickstep and by uh, Jakobsen himself. So, yeah. you know, they've got to be, I guess they're, they're looking out for that as well and probably acting on, as you said, Daniel, legal advice. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's that's a thing that's going on, and uh, um, but but still going going back to what what Groenewegen said in the media. I, I don't know if you heard if you if you if you heard what he said in the media, but uh, I th- he wasn't he wasn't talking about uh, what they were talking uh, um, together about. Uh, he only said, "Well, we had a meeting, and it was a good thing. Uh, it felt good for us. We we saw each other in each other's eyes, and." That was it. I don't think it's 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 wrong, but but still, I think when there are legal people around, they try to get out of you uh, uh, the the one who uh, who's the suspect of who did it. They want to get money, so that's always involved, of course. I think there are two things here, aren't there? The way people really feel about this and the way they want to appear to feel about this. I'm not talking about Grunewagen and Jakobsen, but I think that's applied all along to a lot of the riders. You know, they, I think generally they're, they're more sheepish, they're more cautious about using social media to express strong opinions now anyway, but they certainly, I think, have been on this issue. Um, they, you know, anyone who comes out as sort of sympathetic with Dylan Grunewagen is... is perceived to be somehow um you know condoning a malevolent action um that's that's a harsh judgment of what Grunewagen did but i think that has been the case but i definitely felt today this morning speaking to some of the other riders they felt now that Grunewagen was back they could actually sort of say what they really felt and their position had had softened and they were all pretty benevolent towards Grunewagen in fact we hear from a couple of well, the sprinters who were involved later on in the day Elia Viviani was one and Caleb Ewan as well Elia it's a big day for Dylan Grunewagen today coming back um, and sprinting we think how do you personally feel about him being back yeah I think uh, I see also in the last few days when Sagan say or the others everyone can do a mistake but uh, for that we can't kill one guy so uh, on the part probably he need to excuse to Jakobsen, that is clear, if he, if he had done do already. But uh, on my side, on the, on the peloton, is the Dylan uh, like before. For sure, I think it's more difficult for him, because uh, he, for sure he have in his head he need to do all right, don't be really dangerous in the final. And when you are worried of this, you can't think, really focus on the sprint. So, yeah, I think it's not an easy situation for him, but I see him really... Okay, I just also say hello two days ago in the team presentation, and uh, yeah, I have the feeling uh, if his head is good, he can he can come back in the on the top. Is it ever in your mind what happened last year and all the consequences of what happened with Dylan that now you need to be even more careful not to move? You know, all of you sprinters, do you think about it? Yeah, I think. Uh, you have also in the mind you can't do a really bad move because yeah I think after I see this crash it's not nothing changed in my mind because yeah as a sprinter when you see one wheel come you move a bit but you need to be done dangerous so you, we know the limit when we are there like if I'm coming up I know the limit when I need to touch the brake that is the other point of the other side of, uh, of the sprinter so if you are leading you know how much you can move and if you are coming back from behind you know 
when is the limit and how much need to be the space to pass. So this is the two point one sprinter have in the head. So a lot of people talking about you as a favourite today. Caleb, do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think... Uh, yeah, I guess I'm one of the fastest here, but I wouldn't say I'm the, the clear favourite. You know, there's a lot of quick guys here as well. So, uh, yeah, for sure I'm one of the favourites, but I wouldn't say I'm the absolute clear favourite. Um, how do you feel about the return of Dylan? Obviously, a lot of attention on him. How, how, what are your thoughts about his his return here at the Giro? Um, yeah, yeah. I think he, yeah, he was obviously uh, we knew he was going to return on the first of May. So uh, yeah, it was only a matter of time. We raced each other, and you know I expect him to be one of the the strongest sprinters here again. You know I think yeah he hasn't he has been out of the sport for uh, nine months or whatever it was now. So uh, you know I I still expect him to come back as as one of the strongest. How hard will that be though, having been out racing for so long to you know get into the the rhythm of sprints in particular again? Um, yeah, you know, I really have no idea. You know, I think as a as a sprinter, I think you can really just once you know you once you're in the final of a race, it all comes back to you quite quickly. And I know after you know the off season and you know you, in the off season you have five months off racing almost, and for me anyway. And as soon as you come back into racing, you have that feeling again, and you uh, you get back into it pretty quickly. So I expect the same from him. I mean, clearly all eyes were on Grunewigen today, and at the finish in particular, um, you know, there was a rider taken into the barriers, but it was by his own teammate today, and, and there was no crash, fortunately. But Grunewigen will have been very conscious of that. And I did feel when we spoke to him at the, the finish, we heard that interview right at the start, um, he seemed like a weight had been lifted because that's done now. And, and there will be less attention on him tomorrow, which probably be a sprint stage again. And in the future, it was really today was when all that pressure was on him, all that attention was on him. Of course, if he's involved in, you know, dodgy manoeuvres in the future, if he's perceived to be um, riding dangerously, he will. People will come down on him like, like a ton of bricks. Um, as you know, if riders make mistakes like that, they, they deserve criticism. I think in this case, and we'll hear from Jos van Emden in a moment, the nine-month ban was unprecedented and uh, a lot of people feel it was very, very harsh. Well, if it was, if it was harsh, I, I, I don't know, because you also have to think about uh, the time Jakobs was out, of course. Uh, so if you, if you say Jakobs is also that, that amount of period out of racing, then you should say, well, it's okay for Groenewegen to, to get out of there. So, but you can discuss about this matter, of course. But, but the thing is, Groenewegen did his time. Um, he made a mistake, but the last few months I saw mistakes from other sprinters who were um, the same as Grunewijk did, al although the, the the incident was was less uh, worse. So, but I think he needs he needs a new chance now to, to get back in the in the peloton. And like you said, uh, Richard, uh, uh, this was the first sprint for him, uh, but he always has this monkey on his back uh, uh, because when something happens. Uh, they're gonna point at him, of course, and and also for himself. I think there was a there was a good moment because for nine months his last sprint was uh, what happened in Poland. The the, the uh, big incident was was the last sprint he made. So this is now the last sprint. So I think he will sleep well tonight. Well, you mentioned Jos van Emden, Rich. He's been outspoken before on our he, podcast. He's our always podcast. a good interview for us at the Giro, isn't he? He is, and he's also rooming with Dylan Grunewagen uh, here at the Giro. And yes, he did have some forthright views about the punishment that Grunewagen finally finished serving a few days ago. Uh, Jos, big day for the team, big day for your teammate and compatriot Dylan Grunewagen. Um, how do you think, how did you sense that he was feeling today? Uh, well, he's feeling good. 
um, sharing with him and he gives uh, a real good impression. So, uh, yeah, I think he's strong, but we have to see how it evolves in the final. What's been your personal take, your personal feeling about the, how, how the last few months have gone down, um, you know, the consequences that he's paid? Uh, it's uh, out, outrageous. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a punishment based on nothing. Uh, that never ever someone got punished like that and I, I, I don't want to fight my colleagues from from quick step or something but in my opinion he, he just did the action that was uh, not right but that's it I've seen a closing the door much faster much uh, wider uh, it's, uh, I've seen way worse and this was just a, a mistake uh, and 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 the results were, yeah, were, were, were terrible, of course. Uh, I, I almost didn't sleep that night. I was there and uh, the, the news and the message you got there was that, that he was balancing on, on life and death. So, um, of course, it's very difficult for you guys to say this kind of thing because then people think that you're the, the villain and the enemy, especially with social media. That, that's what I mean. So uh, it, 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 it's hard to give your opinion, but... Um, I also missed it a bit from from the peloton that um, uh, we we all uh, got good good remarks from from colleagues, but I, I missed the, the big complaint from my colleagues towards uh, especially the UCI because uh, they agreed with everything that happened there and 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 they they not even a word a word uh, blaming themselves and and they, they are the one to blame. And you're very much hoping that we'll see him on the top step today at the podium. But I mean, for a sprinter who hasn't raced for nine months, is it easier than it would be for a GC guy to get into form straight away and be competitive? Or do you think it's, it's a big ask? It's going to be really tough for him to win today. I'm not a sprinter, but I think it's, it's easier for a sprinter than a GC guy. Yeah. Uh, you can do your sprints at home. Well, I, I always joke that sprinters have the most easy life of a cyclist. You know, they go out for an endurance ride or they do a, a, a intensity ride with some sprints, you know. So, but I think it's, it's the discipline in cycling that's easiest trainable at home. So uh, let's hope uh, he, he can do good. Just one other question I had on Grunewagen, Hans, was what's his status? How do you perceive his status in the team? Because obviously it's a team whose focus is very much on the Grand Tours now. And they sort of, I think they accepted the ban, the punishment with a lot of dignity. But one might also say that they have the luxury of doing that because Grunewagen isn't their biggest ticket. Um, and well, I forget what his contract situation is. But do you see them as being very committed to him in the future? Uh, yeah, I think so because he's he's one of the big sprinters in the in the peloton, of course. Uh, and well, you mentioned he's not the big name. They've got the, uh, Primus Roglic, Wout van Aert, of course, who who, ca who can uh, get him uh, out of the picture a little bit. So that's that's why probably for a team, if they have two big stars uh, next to Groenewegen, it's easier to say, well, we accept the ban, of course. But uh, I, th I think they, they're going to go on with him because he's a Dutchman uh, in a Dutch team and uh, the other two guys aren't Dutchmen. So he's the star of the, of the Dutch people who are in the team. So uh, probably they're going to go on with him. I was thinking in an alternative universe, you could see him going to De Kooning Quickstep because just today <laughs> uh, Lefebvre um, said that, you know, this, you don't know whether this is just some kind of, you know, part of the, part of the game, but he said that Bennett would, would leave at the end of the year. Alvaro Hodge has not really um, 
maybe proved himself as being a, a declining worthy sprinter um, at the at the highest level. So you would say they're in the market for a, a top level sprinter, and there aren't that many of them available. Gaviria might might be available again. But Grunewagen would be an obvious one, but that's, I mean, that's obviously not going to happen. And, and then to pull the sprint for Jakobsen maybe in, uh, in the Koning, <laughs> that would be nice. Uh, no, uh, well, you don't know what's going to happen with Jakobs, of course, because we, nobody knows. He himself doesn't know if he's going to be the top sprinter he was going to be. So um, if Bennett leaves the Koning Quickstep, they need another sprinter because this team, Lefebvre, always has a big sprinter in the team. And well, I think it depends on Jakob. So what's go- what's going to happen? But Groenewegen to Lefevre a team? Probably <laughs> <And> ha- not. <laughs> well, with, with Patrick, I'm not sure. I wouldn't put anything past him. But um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> the, the one thing I think is lost in all of this, and, and it's been such a you know big controversy and scandal, is how good those two sprinters were. And, and I think yeah. they were just you know they were just arriving at the the peak of their powers. And if you look at their win percentages, both of them. I think were around 50% of the bunch sprints that they were doing, which is which was unrivaled at the time, and they were very much on a on a, a, a course to become the two dominant sprinters in the world. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I wrote uh, a few weeks before that I wrote a story that the, everybody was looking forward to the sprints between Jakobsen and Groenewegen, the two, well, for us Dutchmen who are uh, the top sprinters in the world. And of course, there are a lot of other guys like uh, Bjorn, Bennett, uh, uh, Ackerman. Uh, they're also great. But but these two guys, you 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 saw them grow through the years and getting better and better and better. So I think you've got a point over there. Uh, that 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 point that that we mi- well that we lost because of this big incident of course but uh, and now we have to see if if it's going to happen uh, in the future but uh, um, yeah i think it's going to be difficult the cycling podcast at our giro d'italia is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science Thank you very much indeed to Science and Sport for their support of the cycling podcast. If you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, Daniel, I can hear you limbering up there. SISCP25 at scienceandsport.com. And, uh, well, we're running lots of competitions at the moment. We're running one every week to uh, name the winner of the stage on each of the Sundays at the Giro. And the winner gets an £80 bundle of Science and Sport goodies. You haven't done the review of my 18. I haven't. How did you get on with your 18? I don't know. Um, Well, anyway, Martin Sturck was the the winner. He picked Tim Merlier and he has been picked at random. 16% of entrants correctly tipped Tim Merlier to win stage two. So congratulations, Martin. Science and Sport will send you your prize. And if you want to enter next week's competition to guess the winner of the stage and win a Science and Sport bundle, Go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Now, something I forgot to do last night, um, Stacey Snyder's mugs, cappuccino sets and gelato bowls, new for this year, went on sale yesterday and sold out in five minutes. A new record. Um, so thanks very much, everybody who bought one of these objects, beautiful objects. And um, sorry to those who missed out, but she will be doing another batch. The money raised by these, uh, the sales of these uh, are going to two good causes. The Marina Romoli Onless Association 
and the Masaka Cycling Club in Uganda. Uh, Marina Romoli was a 2006 World Junior Championship silver medalist. She was a, a cyclist hit by a car while training in 2010. She was hospitalized for months, underwent extensive back surgery as well as facial and eye surgery and lots of other uh, work and physio as well. Um, but she spent nearly her entire adult life in a wheelchair since the accident and she set up this foundation um, to help uh, other people uh, walk again after spinal cord injury and carry all kinds of research into that and Marina's foundation was nominated by Elizabeth Hurley friend of the podcast not that Elizabeth Hurley I, I don't I don't believe uh, but thanks very much for your nomination Elizabeth and Dan Fletcher nominated the Masaka Cycling Club which looks fantastic and there's uh, quite a lot out there on uh, YouTube and uh, elsewhere podcasts as well about the Masaka Cycling Club in Uganda so um, we'll be raising money for those two good causes again this year when the uh, when the, the cups and uh, gelato bowls go back on sale um, now will we hear a little bit from our audio diarist James Knox I saw him chatting in the bunch with Simon Yates today we've got another uh, audio diarist to confirm as well haven't we Daniel yes we're going to announce that signing we're going to wait for said individual to send in his first entry. Are we, how confident are we to do it? I'm, I'm confident, but let's wait until tomorrow. Let's okay, try let's to wait. maintain let's, some suspense. Let's wait, okay. Uh, well, let's hear from James. Back in the hotel now. Pretty easy day, if I'm being honest. Uh, reminiscent of uh, rolling around in a UAE stage or uh, something like this. Um, I think for all the, the people interested in power and heart rate or whatever, I, would think, I think my average... Average heart rate was 110 and my average power was 135 watts today, so not really the hardest day, but uh, nevertheless should not complain. Remco nicked a couple of seconds in the in that bonus sprint, and then yeah, we started speeding up faster and faster in the last 20k. Yeah, and Tim Mulia finished off pretty impressively. That was a great sprint. Nice to catch up with some friends, have a bit of chat, go back to DS car, see what they're saying. Everyone pretty relaxed, yeah. Big roll around in the Giro. Um, tomorrow looks wet. Could be a nervous day. We've got some uh, small roads, climbs, tricky descents. Yeah, if I was a betting man, I think there's going to be a lot of stress for the all the GC teams to be up there. And it seems, uh, depending on how hard it is, I'm kind of anticipating they'll go full gas. Maybe uh, sort of finish that maybe Ulisi or yeah, even a Sagan, you know, honestly, could, uh, could tick off an early stage win. So that's tomorrow. Regarding today, what can I add to that? Yeah, there's that photo of me chatting with Simon in the bunch. Apparently gesticulating like an Italian after four days here. Not a good sign for three more weeks. Um, haven't, still haven't learned to put the salt down at the table yet. Masnada's telling me off every day. I has to flick some salt over his shoulder to get rid of the bad luck. But other than that, everything's good. Stick at it. Well, a nice easy day for James Knox and a lot of other people today at, at the Giro. Um, and uh, good to see Androni up the road. You spoke to uh, Gianni Savio so Gianni, at the Gianni was in fine fettle as always. He promised me a formation tomorrow morning, the first formation of the Giro. Gianni's got an 18-year-old riding Panama. I know, yeah. And we're going to hear from someone tomorrow who is is tied in we some way to Panama. Tomorrow. Wow, this is cryptic. Someone who's tied in some, some way. Some, some way, not, not physically. Not physically. But, Just um, tied Yeah, there's a, there's a link. Wow, that's that's great. Um, well, look forward to that. <laughs> it's quite a contrast tonight, isn't it, Daniel? This location compared to last night's very civilised meal. I'm getting bitten by ants and all kinds of flying things here. We're sitting on a 
on a concrete block just outside race headquarters. It's not, it doesn't feel like the most salubrious part of uh, of Italy, where we are. No, I mean, Novara is quite a beautiful place, but we're on the outside of certainly the centre. Um, it's not Turin, it's not central Turin. I think we we agreed that we very much enjoyed yesterday. We enjoyed the crowds, we enjoyed the atmosphere, we enjoyed our, our dinner in the evening. I had some nice, nice gnocchi with uh, nocciole, hazelnuts. Hazelnuts are, are a big speciality in Piedmont, particularly, Rich, when the, the area that we head into tomorrow, I mean, it's famous for many things. It's famous for wine, it's famous for truffles, it's famous for mushrooms, but very much uh, famous as well for hazelnuts and chocolate, in fact. Um, I think most people will be aware, familiar with Ferrero Rocher and Nutella and Ferrero, that company is based well, pretty much very close to the finish tomorrow. Wow, great. Um, look forward to that. But we did start in Turin, didn't we? And in fact, we're going to go back in time a little bit. We, we are talking about Turin, but should we revisit my little trip with Herbie Sykes yesterday morning to the ceremony to honour Fausto Coppi and the Piedmontese Giro greats of yore? And as promised yesterday, Rich, Herbie and I spoke a little bit about the connection between the great... Torinese sporting institu- institution Juventus and cycling and also another Torinese institution Fiat. We were just talking about Piedmontese cycling heritage and when you think about Piedmontese and Turin sporting heritage obviously the first thing you think of is Juventus but there's a there's quite a strong cycling link with Juventus isn't there? Yeah um, extremely strong in point of fact uh, and it relates to the old Carpano team Carpano is, uh, is Vermouth and, and Vermouth is, is, is a Piemontese uh, construct a Piemontese um, drink um, it's a long and quite convoluted story but in effect Carpano who won the Giro d'Italia twice with Franco Balmamion in 62 and 63 won the Tour de France in 1960 with Gaston and Encini. They wore a black and white striped shirt, which was effectively or essentially the same as the Juventus shirt. There's a perfectly good reason for that. Which was the same as the Notts County which shirt, but that's another, that's another story that we're yeah, not going to go we into. We need several hours for that one. But uh, in effect, the manager of Carpano, Carpano was created in 1956 as a, a vehicle to sell Fausto Coppi's new range of bicycles. Okay, And for two years, they wore a fairly fairly prosaic white jersey and it was called Carpano Coppi. In 1957 Coppi went back to Bianchi, his old team, and uh, and Giacotto, the manager of this team of Carpano, this Juventus fan, big Juventus fan, had an idea. In the, in the summer of 1957, Juventus bought, famously bought John Charles and Omar Sivori. They, they smashed the transfer, world transfer record, record twice in three days, okay? and kind of galvanised Italian football. They'd been in the doldrums for some years. And Giacotto had this idea that, that Carpano, being a Torinese brand, ought to have a Torinese identity and also Torinese riders. So what mm. they did in, 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 in brief was they took all of the Torinese professional riders, and there were a lot of them back then, so they had probably seven or eight on the books. Uh, Angelo Conterno had won the Vuelta Espana, Tino Coletto, third at the Giro d'Italia, Pino Favero, all of the, 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 the Torinese riders. And he put them in a Juventus shirt, because what could be more Torinese than, 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 than Vermouth and, and Juventus? So Carpano uh, created this new identity, which was, a very re- which was obviously a regional identity, and cycling teams have never really done that before. Mm. 
Um, and, and don't really do it now or haven't really done it in the last 20 or 30 or 40 years? No, not particularly. Although it is, you know, there, there's always an element of that. But mm. back in the day, I mean, they, they were the, the Piemontese team. And there's an interesting um, um, caveat to that, that in 1960, the, the owners of Carpano also owned a famous chocolate brand, Barati, which still exists today and is still a famous brand. Um, and at the 1961 Giro d'Italia, um, the, the fact that, that, that these riders were wearing a Juventus shirt was all well and good, but the Piemontese people tended to support Torino, the other team in Turin, because they'd been phenomenally successful in the 40s. The, the team had been wiped out tragically in 1949, an air crash on, 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 on you know, Superga, the hill overlooking the city. That we just talked about. We in... just talked about. Um, so at the 1961 Giro, they fielded two teams, in effect. There was a, a, a Juventus team, yeah, and the other team, the, the Barati team, had this granite, this pomegranate, this kind of uh, maroon-coloured um, jersey. So you had a kind of a Turin derby going on within the Giro d'Italia. And those, right? are, of course, are famously the colours of... Torino. Of Torino, sorry, the, 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 the so-called second team in Turin, but, but, but the more popular team in Turin and Piemont itself. Um, and there was a, um, a very famous finish to Milan-Turin in the velodrome here where two riders came in together as a two-up sprint between Angelo Conterno wearing the, the Torino jersey and Walter Martin wearing the, 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 the Juventus jersey. Yeah. So Carpano and Barati. Uh, on that occasion, the Juventus jersey won, so, and it was ever thus. Um, but also, in point of fact, was, uh, the 1961 Giro d'Italia, there was a Milan jersey. It was won by a guy named Arnaldo Pambianco, because cycling and, and football were obviously the two sports. Uh, the, the Milanese team, Ignis, liked the idea, uh, that saw, saw what Carpano were doing with Juventus, and the owner, this guy named Borghi, dressed his team in a Milan shirt. And Arnaldo Pambianco famously won that Giro. So basically, at the Giro d'Italia of 1961, you got three football teams. You had Milan, Juventus and Torino. And Arnaldo, wearing the, the Milan jersey, um, famously swapped it for the Magliaros and won the Giro d'Italia. But of course, you could write several books about the history of Juventus, the football club, and you just have. You've just written, well, one anyway. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's kind of like everything in Turin, it's framed through and predicated upon the Agnelli family and Fiat. Because uh, Fiat is the story of the Italian century, and everything in this town, everything still today in point of fact, is kind of informed by fiat. You know, it was colossal, this thing, and it was synonymous with and the driver of the so-called boom economico, the huge e economic boom po in post-war Italy. They were the architects of it, and Turin was its, you know, one of its, was its cardinal point, really. It's one of its, this was the power base of the economic miracle. And certainly at one time, and it still holds true today to a certain extent, if you didn't work for fiat and you lived in Turin, you worked for someone who worked with Fiat. Yeah, and, the Fiat, and, and, and jobs at Fiat were jobs for life. It was the very best job. So if you were a, so if you were a migrant from Puglia or Campania or Molise or Abruzzo from the south and, uh, and you found a job at Fiat or if you were a, a wife and your husband found a job at Fiat, that was about as good as it got, you know. So there was an enormous pride for Italian housewives, in, in, in you know, uh, there's this famous image, iconic image of an Italian, a southern Italian housewife, decamped or uprooted Turin, 
hanging her husband's Fiat overalls on the washing line and the pride that that would engender is colossal because that's success, mm. you know. Fiat was incredibly prestigious. Those jobs were the best jobs. What was Herbie Sykes on your tour of Turin? Um, you've been beavering away on your Kilometre Zero, first Kilometre Zero of the Giro coming tomorrow. There'll be nine episodes in total, three per week. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to listening to this one because it's a subject that we've spoken about on the podcast quite a bit and a figure of great intrigue, really, but who people will never have heard from, I, I think, or most people, certainly. No. Who is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you, Richard. Yes, I'm going to keep it's the mystery. Mystery. mystery going until tomorrow morning. Okay, right. Well, look, look, listen out for that. Um, that's all for us for tonight. We've got a bit of a drive now to our bed and breakfast to the start town tomorrow. To Biella, Biella, people might remember, might be familiar with a famous Giro climb, the Santuario di Europa, where Pantani decimated uh, the, the field in 1999, a few days, of course, before he was kicked out of that, that race. Indeed. Um, well, we'll reconvene tomorrow, Daniel. We're expecting another sprinter's stage. You'll be reeling off another 18 sprinters in your 18 to watch. I'll, we'll go back and check how you've been getting on. Don't worry, I'll catch up with that. But in the meantime, thank you very much. Thank you.